Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the big stories in the COVID world this week, pharmaceutical company Merck is seeking emergency use authorization for its COVID-19 pill. If approved, it would be the first oral antiviral for COVID. Other treatments such as remdesivir or monoclonal antibody treatments both require intravenous infusion. The pill reduces risk of hospitalization by 50% and would be a very welcome new treatment on the scene. For more on this pill that directly targets the virus, we'll speak to Riley Griffin, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. So Merck and its partner Ridgeback Biotherapeutics have sought an EUA, that emergency use authorization, from U.S. regulators. Um, This is something that, based on conversations I've had with Merck, could come even before Halloween. And and that is a real um, win for the U.S., because we've wanted for quite some time, as you've mentioned, something that is cheap, easily distributed, accessible. And and one important part of this, too, is that it's easier to produce. Um, A pill like this in capsule form is quicker to get off the supply chain than an intravenous solution. Um, So that's a a really important part of this story. Um, This drug has been in development for years and years and years for different uh, viral designations. And um, Merck ultimately found it from Ridgeback, which had licensed the compound um, from Emory. And, and countless academic institutions have worked on this um, drug for ages. Um, so really exciting development here. We hope to see regulators act quickly. Anthony Fauci has said that the FDA is expected to move quite fast And the good news here is that um, an interim analysis of clinical trial data found that it cut the risk of hospitalization in half for patients who are at risk of developing a severe illness that may require hospitalization. Now, I might get this wrong. The drug is called molnupiravir. And it basically, uh, you know, as soon as you get diagnosed with COVID-19, this is something that they would give you. You know, it's not necessarily a preventative. It's it's treatment. It attacks the virus. Um, what kind of uh, course of treatment and how much does this cost? Yeah, it's a course of treatment that you take for a couple of days. So um, Merck has reiterated that it expects to make 10 million treatment courses or 400 million capsules before the end of 2021. We've actually learned from the New York Times, our friends over there say that this five-day course of treatment will cost about $700 per patient, which is a third of the amount of a monoclonal antibody treatment, um, so to speak. So it is certainly cheaper. That's not to say it's as cheap as um, all kind of capsules of this class, but you're really thinking, what is the cost of hospitalization? And that is rather high. It's especially high at a time here in the U.S., where we are still seeing people unvaccinated land in the emergency room. And so no doubt these uh, COVID-19 therapeutics are desperately needed here in the U.S. as we continue to see large unvaccinated populations persist, but also outside of the U.S. where we may not have seen equitable distribution of vaccines to date. And they say that the safety profile of the pill is pretty good. There's very little side effects 
Uh, so, you know, that, that would probably, you know, help with a lot of people, you know, curious about this type of drug. Um, one of the things that there was a concern of, right, there's always a concern of variants. And could the virus change enough uh, to not really make the pill that effective? That is a possibility. But thankfully, what they've said is that that might not, that it shouldn't be too much of a concern, at least with this pill, uh, based on how it works. Uh, tell us how it works, because it, it's pretty interesting it, what it does. It does attack the virus directly introducing errors into it so that it basically kills itself off almost you you've hit it so drug resistance occurs when viruses or bacteria evolve to blunt or defeat drugs mechanism of of attack and viruses they are wily things they mutate to survive um this is a constant concern for antivirals and antibiotics and we've already seen covid treatments like eli and lily and co's antibody therapy face issues with drug resistance. But as you said, um, Merck executives have told me that they're not too concerned about molnupiravir and drug resistance. Um, There are a couple of reasons why they say that. One is that the course of treatment is short. That means there's um, less of an opportunity to uh, evolve into resistant forms. But the more important reason lies in the drug's mechanism of action. So pioneered by these researchers at Emory University and other academic centers, molnupiravir really works by introducing errors into the coronavirus's genetic material. Think that through. What that means is that errors are replicated until the viruses are defunct. And in this case, the errors are actually induced um, more or less randomly throughout the viral genome. So what does that mean in human speak, right? Not all of us are, are um, well-equipped to, to think about a viral genome. Right. Um, but that means that the virus has fewer opportunities to develop mutant forms that will overcome those errors. So it's really about that random distribution. And that in and of itself makes resistance a really tough thing, said um, one Mark executive. Just to be clear, right, uh, vaccines are still better and 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 work well at preventing the, uh, COVID. This is for somebody that has already been uh, who's already contracted COVID. You know, it's a treatment after the fact, but still uh, really good. And they say that you know uh, when you pair it with other uh, other types of drugs, you know, there's kind of cocktails of other things to attack the virus on on all sorts of sides. Uh, you know, it works even better that way too. Well, we haven't yet seen them combine molnupiravir with another um, drug like say, Pfizer's still-evolving candidate that is also an antiviral pill. We might one day see um, Merck create such a cocktail. But for now, we're really looking at um, this specific uh, molnupiravir compound and thinking through its efficacy and its safety. But yes, in general, um, cocktails can be more effective. They can also um, reduce that chance at resistance. Um, And this is definitely an exciting development, but nobody should be seeing this as an alternative to a vaccine. It's for those who get sick and those who get sick need to take it pretty early on um, after they have contracted COVID and have a confirmed um, diagnosis there. So testing is also going to be a part of this story. Um, If people have symptoms, you want to get tested very quick. And right thereafter, call a doctor right. to ensure that you can get access. But we haven't yet gotten there. We still need that EUA. We still need the FDA to sign off on molnupiravir. And so that, that step comes first. 
Riley Griffin, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Cheers. You've been hearing about it all week long. America's supply chain is broken. And there's no better example than looking at all the ships sitting off the coast of California. The pandemic has caused a major shift in consumer spending, and it triggered a huge influx of imports. And it's all bottlenecked due to the lack of coordination and worker shortages. Ships are at ports waiting to be unloaded. Not enough workers there can offload containers in a timely manner. And a shortage of truck drivers is delaying shipments to the rest of the country. For more on the broken supply chain, we'll speak to David Lynch, global economics correspondent at The Washington Post. This has been going on really since the beginning of the pandemic when Chinese factories shut down during the initial lockdowns to try and uh, beat back the, uh, the virus. And the disruptions that started from that have just been rippling through, uh, you know, we Americans have been trapped in our homes, uh, many of us, for much of uh, the last year or so. And so rather than spending money at restaurants, ball games, movie theaters, we were spending it on stuff. Everybody was buying a new iPhone or a laptop or a, a desk so they could work from home or a new furniture to make the house more comfortable. And all that stuff comes from China and Southeast Asia by and large. And so the normal seasonal patterns have been completely disrupted. That means a lot of the equipment that's needed once the shipping containers get onto land, the trucking, the chassis, you know, really every piece of the of the chain has been discombobulated, has been put out of sync. And this system is designed to work like runners in a relay. I run my lap, then I hand the baton to you, you run your lap, etc. When I'm done with my lap, if you're not there waiting to take the baton, we've got a problem. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, obviously we know how big of a shift the pandemic was, right? Things stopped in its tracks and our spending habits changed just that quickly. And as you said, you know, the more demand for all that stuff, whatever it was, you know, started kind of exposing all of the problems in that supply chain, ruining that relay race, as you just said. Okay, so let's talk about the U.S. and how we handle this stuff. It seems like we've never been particularly good at the flow of this, at least when it comes to coordination and information sharing. On the one hand, the system does a a pretty good job of working under normal conditions. Pre-pandemic, none of us had much trouble getting our hands on the stuff we wanted. But relative to an optimal system, uh, for instance, comparing a, a U.S. port to a top-line port in Europe or Asia, we're, we're not where we should be. You know, for a country that prides itself on high technology, we don't have fully deployed the sort of seamless information systems, databases, all the high-tech wizardry that would allow everybody who's involved along the supply chain to see the same information at the same time, to be able to track containers to track equipment so that everybody has full visibility into what's happening. We're not as good at that right now as others are. And some of that's because of data privacy concerns, competitive concerns. If I'm a retailer, I might worry that if, if you, the, uh, you know, at the port have full visibility into what I'm ordering and when it's coming, you know, that might be useful information for my competition to have. There are ways around that. But we need what what experts tell me is we need to get beyond those concerns, resolve them and put in place the sort of systems that others already have deployed. Right now, we're seeing a huge backlog on the West ports in L.A., Long Beach, all that. Uh, Is this happening 
all over the country? Why are we seeing this mostly off the coast of California? Well, because that's where that's where cargo from Asia lands in the U.S. That so all the all the factories in coastal China, Vietnam, Cambodia, Southeast Asia, all across that part of the world, when container ships pick up the cargo there, they take it to L.A., Long Beach. To a lesser extent, as those ports have gotten crowded, they move up the coast to Oakland and Seattle. But those facilities are are farther away from the consumer heartland and are not as as big as LA and Long Beach. Now, you are seeing the Port of Savannah, for instance, has got a lot of ships waiting offshore. Nothing like LA, but relative to Savannah's normal operations, they're seeing a lot of uh, demand. Uh, And up to New York as well, even Houston, some of the ships that were diverted through the Panama Canal that would have normally have gone to the West Coast, they came up through the canal and and hit uh, our Gulf uh, ports there. So you've seen the congestion spread in that regard. You know, this is an unusual, obviously an unusual episode, but it's exposed some some vulnerabilities in the system that uh, that need to be addressed going forward. Yeah, you made note in the article, the U.S. is importing a historic amount of goods and that L.A. port is expected to handle a record 10.8 million containers this year. I mean, obviously, that's just a ton. Let's talk about costs, because cost of all the shipping stuff has gone up tremendously, $20,000 for a container. You made mention that it's twice what it costs in July, and that's twice what it costs in January. So the the prices of shipping have gone up exponentially, and it's uh, obviously affects smaller companies more than bigger players like, you know, Walmarts and stuff that can absorb those costs a lot easier. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're, if you're a Walmart or an Amazon or Costco, you're able to sign long-term annual contracts with the ocean carriers. And because you bring them so much business, you're going to get a decent rate. And you're almost more importantly, you're going to have certainty that your stuff is going to get on their boats. If you're a smaller guy who's importing 100 containers uh, in the course of a year rather than hundreds of thousands of containers, then you're just not as important to the carriers. And so you might get bumped off a vessel as the carriers have uh, had to skip sailings because their boats are getting tied up. All those ships that are waiting off the coast of L.A., they should be already on their way back to get more stuff out of China, but they're not in position to do that. So somebody's got to lose out. It's not going to be Walmart. It's going to be the little guy. That forces the little guy into the spot market where he's got to pay through the nose. It's like trying to get to a ball game. You buy the tickets at the beginning of the season, you get one rate. If you want to buy a World Series ticket the day of the game, standing outside the stadium, you're going to have to pay a scalper, and that's going to cost more. Tell me a little bit about just-in-time production, because I know that figures into a lot of the way companies operate. It helps them keep inventories and costs low. But when things get backlogged like this, it, you know, it, it really, you know, we start seeing some weaknesses in that. And, you know, sometimes businesses have to turn down, companies have to turn down business because they can't get the right ingredients, equipment to, to complete their orders and stuff. Yeah, that, I mean, we we found that in, in talking to companies uh, out in the Midwest to have their operations set up. And, and this is, you know, this was a great innovation because it, it brought tremendous efficiency to production instead of keeping enormous stockpiles of material around. If you do that, you've got to pay to store them. You've got to pay because you already purchased the stuff, but you're not getting paid for your goods yet. So just buying sort of as much as you need to produce this week's 
uh, output or this month's output was a great innovation. But again, it, it was efficiency at the cost of resilience. And so when something goes wrong, and the pandemic isn't the only thing that's ever gone wrong in history. We've had bad weather in Texas, which knocked offline petrochemical plants that produce a certain kind of resin that's needed for lots of industrial plastics. We've had earthquakes, we've had fires, all sorts of things can go wrong. And when they do, and when they disrupt this finely calibrated supply chain, that's when the problems arise. Let's talk about one of the last cogs in this whole supply chain, which is the truck drivers, which we've seen shortages of too. But, you know, as we've been talking about, right, there's backlogs at the ports. It takes time to get those uh, containers unloaded and onto trucks. And what we're seeing is just a big backlog of truck drivers uh, waiting hours to get into the ports to get those uh, containers out of there. You talked about one man who was a, a truck driver and in normal circumstance, he can make seven round trips in an 11 hour workday to get those containers out of there. Now he's just doing one or two trips and spending time. I think he, he learned salsa uh, looking at YouTube videos or something. That's all the time he's kind of wasting, just sitting there waiting to get in and out. And, and the important thing here is the way all of these disruptions feed on themselves, right? He can't get in and out of the rail yard as quickly as he'd like to to pick up containers because the rail yard is jammed with containers. And they're jammed with containers because the ports are dealing ultimately with record volume and sending in more stuff to the rail yard than they can process. That discourages the trucker. Uh, it discourages others from getting into truck driving because they look at what's going on and they say, well, geez, you know, that's not easy money. I'm gonna, I'll am gonna, go do something else. Uh, and as you say, this, you know, the trucker we profiled uh, is wasting so much time that he's, you know, he's listening to audio books and he's uh, watching uh, Conan O'Brien uh, comedy bits. Uh, and and uh, even learning how to how to dance the salsa by watching uh, yeah. YouTube videos, but but the trucking uh, situation is a tough one because you know the trucking companies tell me that they're having a hard time getting young guys to come into the business because you know it's it's a tough way to make a living, right. and you know the short haul guys that's one thing, but those long haul drivers when you're away from home four or five nights uh, in a row, uh, a lot of guys don't want to do that. Yeah. And finally, you know, what we've been hearing, right? Start buying your Christmas presents early. The holiday shopping season is going to be rough, low supply, higher prices. Um, you know, people are saying that these headaches, these supply chain headaches are going to last through 2022. Yeah, this and, you know, these are problems that early on in the pandemic, people were saying, OK, maybe it's going to be a quarter or two uh, and then we'll we'll be back uh, in sync. Uh, now it's it's clear, you know, it was all last year, it's all this year, and it may well be all next year. For the holiday season, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't wait around. Uh, you know, I, I I don't think this is going to be the apocalypse. I don't think people are going to go to stores uh, and find you know completely barren shelves. But if you've got your heart set on a particular toy or a particular piece of electronics, I'd start looking for it early because there's no guarantee it's going to be there. You know, if you wait till the last minute. David Lynch, global economics correspondent at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Anytime. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.